This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews. And once again, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raff. How are we, Johnny? Uh, look, been a little bit better, Dan. I've actually come down with a bit of a cold lately, but uh, yeah, it didn't stop me getting out to the G yesterday. <laughs> you did well. It was pretty cold. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, probably have to be bedridden before I don't go to the footy. But uh, yeah, it was <laughs> worth it. It was worth it. Yeah, it was an interesting game. I guess Carlton jumped Melbourne a little bit early. It's kind of been a similar trend in a lot of the games. Yeah. It seems to take Melbourne somewhere between sort of 10 minutes and 20 minutes, somewhere around there, to actually get their game going. We do know. seem to start slow. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, really hit back hard towards the end of that first quarter and uh, set up the rest of the game from there, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So, round nine's in the books. What caught your eye? Oh, well, look, yeah, another interesting round. Well, they all interesting, but I think couldn't go past North Melbourne. Finally off and running. Great result for David Noble and everything he's trying to push with that young group. Uh, and another reality check for the Hawks and just how far they've fallen. Yeah, absolutely. So they've now lost to two teams on these large runs of losses. So it was Adelaide towards the end of last year and now North Melbourne here. So... Yeah, I guess it is hard when, you know, a team's pushing for the win and you're one of the other teams that's sort of in the lower runs of the ladder. It's always going to be hard. Another thing I've noticed with the Hawthorne lately is they really do let teams go on these unanswered goal streaks in short periods. And, yeah, there was just you know, another one to add to the list yesterday, um, sorry, on Saturday. Because yeah. Hawthorne were up in that game, weren't they? And by a bit yes. and then then North must have got on this run that you're talking about, right? That's right, yeah. I think first half they were down. They were definitely down in that first quarter. Uh, I think it got to about 33-7, to 7, Hawthorne in front. But uh, North steadily uh, worked away at it and, yeah, came home with the with the chocolates. Oh, it's, yeah, definitely good that they got their first win. You don't want any team going through without no. winning a game. So no, definitely Good not. on North Melbourne. For me, it was actually the Bulldogs game at Adelaide Oval against Port, so that was one of the Saturday night games, and it was pretty competitive up to half-time, and then Bulldogs really just shut the lights, seven goals for three after half-time, dominating through the midfield, yeah, I guess rubber stamping the fact that they were going to be right up there this season. They sort of just brushed them aside in that second half, didn't they? Yeah. Just their skill and everything. They, I guess, like, I was actually thinking going into the game, you know, who's going to win this? What, what What's the difference going to be? And I guess it's pretty obvious to point to the Bulldogs midfield being strong, but I guess that's where Port's fallen down a bit in some of these games that they've lost against top eight or top four contenders. I guess Brisbane, West Coast, and this game, the midfield has definitely uh, let them down. It is a concern for them, and uh, it does make you think after Wines and Boke, is there much depth through that midfield? Is there a bit of a drop after those two? Yeah, I guess they are missing some of their younger guys that yeah, can true. run through there a little bit. Like, I guess Dersma plays yeah. a bit Butters of Butters is a big loss. Butters, I don't know whether he plays much of the midfield, but I don't know. Eventually yeah, he will. Eventually, yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess Port's midfield maybe isn't that deep compared to some of the other teams up in the top, top end of the ladder. Exactly, yeah. So it's going to be hard for them to win games against top eight sides. And I think that's sort of what's been going around the footy shows, hasn't it? Everyone's been showing the wins against top eight sides. Melbourne's 
on top of that ladder as well, yeah. three and oh. <laughs> but uh, I think Port's one and three on that register, and the only win came against Richmond in that by a couple of points. That game we reviewed a while ago. It's definitely important to have, I think, those those rotations through the midfield though, and have that depth um, because, especially without um, well, without that many rotations and longer games, you, you you can't leave it all up to just the one or two guys. No, and I guess you can get away with it a bit more against the teams that you're expected to beat, yeah. you know, who are below you on the ladder, but it's going to be a lot harder when yeah, you're playing sure. against the better teams. Yeah. All right, well, for match of the round this round, I don't think it'll surprise too many people. It was the Richmond GWS game, also played on Saturday night. So it was a great set of games on Saturday night. This one was at Etihad Stadium which itself was a little bit controversial, Richmond having to play home game at Etihad. Um, just on that, uh, what was the crowd again? It was about 18,000? Yeah, just over 18,000, I think. And was there any explanation? As, like, Did they just not turn up, or were, were there, was it a ticketing issue? or like, cause No, it was... I think I did hear, actually, something. I don't know how true this was, that Gail, Brennan Gale, their CEO, actually flagged something about this almost telling people to sort of not go to the game in a way as like a bit of a stance that all right. their games should be at the MCG. So sort of that like vote with your feet type mentality. Gee, by not going. So I don't, it might not have been that direct, but I think there was something along those lines to say, you know, we shouldn't have to play our home games that Eddie had. So might've been a bit in that. Mm, very interesting. Maybe not the last we've heard of it either. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is a bit of a stretch. For teams like, you know, Richmond or even Melbourne playing home games that Eddie had. And, uh, yeah, the fans don't seem to want to go across the other side of the city and that particular stadium maybe as well. Yeah, I, I think, like, most teams probably get one or two games there a year. I mean, I haven't really checked, but there's Hawthorne and um, Collingwood, well, Collingwood probably get I one. Think, I, think, I think pretty much every team would have to play at least one home game. Yeah. There, although Melbourne... For the last couple of seasons, Melbourne hasn't has to, had to hasn't had to. I've noticed that. Maybe because we sold a couple of them to go yeah, to Alice maybe, Springs, and maybe yeah. that would have been some of the Alice Springs stuff. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's let's jump into the actual game. So the game started with Arts kicking off the ground from about twenty meters out on an angle, and it was actually Richmond who had two of the first three goals to start the game. Beautiful goal that one. Yeah, <laughs> they're off to a flyer. So GWS managed to get it straight back with a centre bounce goal where they controlled it going forward and it ended up with Josh Kelly snapping from the pocket in characteristic fashion. So it looked like both teams were really up for it early. So it was quite a tight first quarter. It was really goal for goal and it ended up with GWS taking a nine-point lead into it thanks to two goals from Toby Green, ever reliable as a source of goals. They were well on top early, and um, yeah, uh, uh, Jacob Hopper was really, really busy early, and just he's, he's having a great season. I think he's got to be in line for their best and fairest. What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. I think their midfield over the last month or so has really lifted, and I guess he's been central to that. I guess Taranto as well. Definitely, yeah. In particular. And uh, even young guy Tom Green seems to now absolutely. be able to get a consistent game. He definitely, um, he definitely made the most of uh, them having a few of their midfielders out. I thought he was really just sort of physically bullying them a bit, yeah. Yeah, with him and Hopper in there, they're pretty big through the midfield. Absolutely. 
So in just six minutes of the second quarter, Hogan had kicked Trulli from set shots three out of three. So in truth, all the kicks were delivered to him on a silver platter. The service inside 50 was fantastic. It was good, though, from Hogan because he was nailing goals from about 40 out and uh, one was from 50 as well. So even going back to his Melbourne days, he always seemed to struggle to kick 50. So yeah, whether he's worked on this a bit, but he seemed to be doing it pretty well. Yeah, I think uh, the back issues earlier in his career definitely took a few metres off his um, off his sort of roosting the footy ability. But um, he's got a nice set shot routine at the moment, and that was a great burst there. I think it was three goals inside about five minutes. So, yeah, he was yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. GWS getting heaps of clearances in that time, I suppose, and, yeah, really good services, I described. And that little patch allowed them to build a 26-point lead pretty early in the second quarter. So it was a midfield turnover, though, that saw Dusty one out, who was playing deep inside 50. After edging his opponent under the ball, he snapped the goal in characteristic fashion, although he flirted with the left-hand goalpost pretty closely. It was the start of things to come. And after a long kick-in from Lynch, Dusty found the smallest of openings to push it through with the left boot. Didn't look like too many players would have been able to find that opening he got there either, so he's... Very smart for the second goal there. Yeah, only a few millimetres of daylight, but if anyone's going to find it, it's probably him. And it was Hogan back up the other end in the action as well, with Nankervis coming back to try and defend Hogan coming up at the ball. Hogan looked like he took the mark. He probably got the free kick paid as well as Nankervis came cannoning into him. So it was actually 50 metre paid for this, and Hogan had his fourth goal for the quarter. So it's good to see yeah. Hogan putting his body on the line here because I guess that's one thing I noticed in his Melbourne days as well. He wasn't always, you know, wanting to put on that much, you know, physical uh, physicality in the marking contests. So he good show, show some strength here. He, he looks really up for the for the opportunity he's been given by the Giants. I think he sort of realizes that this is probably it if he can't put it together. With GWS, then I don't know if there would be a fourth club. There, may, you know, there might be, but he just looks like he's he's ready to take the opportunity and he's willing to do what it, whatever it takes for the moment, at least. So another centre bounce goal came from the next play after this Hogan goal, and it was Bobby Hill receiving on the lead before kicking Truly. So you can see here that GWS was doing really well out of the centre clearances in particular, and just clearances in general. I guess Richmond's midfield is pretty decimated at the moment with some injuries in terms of like Lambert and Prestia and a few others being out. So they had a bit of a makeshift midfield. They moved uh, Liam Baker in there and even Arts was in there at times as well. So definitely, it's probably not even the B-grade midfield for Richmond. It's probably the C or D-grade midfield, but well, yeah. they're still doing pretty well. Uh, definitely holding more than holding their own, and um, was really impressed with Liam Baker. Actually, uh, yeah, he sort of gives it up a little bit too, but he's just ruthless in his attack on the ball and getting in and under. You can sort of, you can sort of forgive players a little bit when they don't not as clean with their skill if they're just, you know, life or death going after that footy. He's really hard at it, isn't he, Baker? Very hard. He, he, very hard. He goes, he goes for pretty ambitious kicks too. So when they do come off. Something generally happens, so yeah, that they tried him through the midfield. 
It may not be that he's a, like a bad kick. He just he does try to bite off a bit more than he can chew sometimes. For sure. So to go back the other way, it was actually Collier Dawkins snapping to ensure that GWS's halftime lead was 21 points. So I guess Richmond was kind of just hanging in there. They were playing pretty well, but GWS was scoring probably a little bit too easily, getting a lot of uh, score being generated through clearances or quite clean play through the midfield. So there were some worrying signs here for Richmond leading into the halftime break. Yeah, they were getting sliced a bit through the middle and... uh... Yeah, it was sort of heading the way of the Geelong game again, really. I mean, they were, they were bleeding goals. So probably in a sign of things to come, it was actually a bit of a stalemate early in the third quarter, which is probably a sign that Richmond was getting the game a little bit more back on their terms. There weren't as many free-flowing passages that allowed GWS to score easily. But it was GWS who scored first. So basically... O'Halloran was able to goal to end that run of quite uh, dour play. So that at that point, it was actually out to a 28-point lead. But it was actually GWS who turned it over with a bit of a dodgy kick centering in defence. And after a long Baker handball, Dusty was in exactly the right place, as he generally is. And as he arced around, snapping on the right, the Richmond fans were up in full voice, and uh, they still had hope. This is just a, a textbook Dusty goal, and it looks it looks easy, but he, there's something that Dusty does just before he opens the angle up here. It's that full extension of the arm that, you know, the don't argue, whatever everyone calls it. Uh, he just has it perfected, and no one knows how to deal with it when it comes. It's almost like a, a boxer or an MMA fighter trying to keep distance when he does it, and... He gets this separation so easily, and he always backs himself because he knows that he's you know, he's strong, and you know, he's, even if someone does sort of hit him, he's probably going to keep his balance. So, yeah, uh, there was a great goal, that one. It's almost like the patented Dusty thing, isn't it? I guess it used to be kind of the fend-off when he played, you know, midfield. Yeah, the midfield, fed, yeah. You go for the fend-off and then, you know, spot someone up or, you know, find a good option. But now it's more about... I guess what he's doing in the forward line. So whether it's, you know, just marking one-on-one or sort of fighting on the ground with combine that with the fend off and the snap, that's probably more his trademark now. That's right. That's right. And he never gets pushed under it either. I find he's, he's always just got that awareness to sort of use that. Yeah. Use the fend off when he needs to, but just um, not get out strength at the critical moment. So next it was actually Jack Rewalt raking in a big contested mark. So the shot would have been from right on the 50, but instead he gave it off to Collier Dawkins, who's just come in recently with this spate of injuries. I think he's played two or three games now. But he was able to nail the set shot from about 40 metres out. And suddenly the lead for GWS was down to 15 points, two in a row to the Tigers, and the momentum seemed to be building here. It certainly was. So the surge was on. And you could see that Richmond were just trying to get it forward as quickly as they could. And from a long kick in, the ball again fell to Dusty. And he was actually able to hand off while being tackled, showing great strength to Arts, who put it through. Yep, once again, great example of that fend off. And yeah, they were coming hard. And didn't stop there either. So when 
Stagner nailed one from the paint of 50. The Tigers went into three-quarter time, just three points down. So it was looking for all the world like they were going to run over the top of GWS here. Yeah. Often that, really strong in second halves. They had to hit his steam up, that's for sure. Early in the fourth, though, it was actually GWS who managed to stop the rot. And it was actually a bit of a shank kick that landed in the open arms of Sam Lloyd. And he he's actually a really good kick for goal, Sam Lloyd. Beautiful kick for goal. And he, uh, I think he, he, I heard this on the coverage the other day that he actually played as a full forward uh, in, like, as a, I guess in one of the lower leagues before he got recruited as yeah. a mature age recruit. So he's always been a sort of a bit of a utility, but I guess they're using him a bit more forward now. Definitely and if, he, if They actually do seem to look for him a bit as well, just on these little sh- spot-up kicks. Yeah, the target. they're yeah. trying to get to him. He can, he can kick a long ball. No, yeah, absolutely. So on the set shot, he put it through from about 50, and... Uh, GWS got their lead back out to 14 points at this point. So even though it looked like Richmond were coming in the third, GWS had managed to put a bit of space on them again. Yeah, a bit of breathing space, but uh, there's a long way to go. (laughs) Still plenty of time left at this point. Oh, yeah. So he'd been quiet all night, but up the other end, Jack Rewalt found it on the ground and managed to snap from about 30 out. This is pretty characteristic of one of the, you know, one of Jack's traits to be able Definitely. to find it so quickly on the ground and get the snap through. Yep. And now the margin was less than two kicks again. So from behind, from a GWS behind, it was actually Richmond taking it the length of the ground. And it ended with Dusty on the goal line, scrounging to try and get there. It looked like the goal... <clears throat> it looked like the ball was actually going to beat him to the line as he sort of cannoned into the umpire. And I don't know how the umpire made a decision on this. It looked like he was completely unsighted as to whether the ball had already crossed the line. Yeah. But he'd called it as a as a goal, and they couldn't really tell anything on the replay either just because of uh, where the bodies were and the technology's not really good enough. Um, yeah, I thought the exact same thing. I don't know how he had the... Um, the view that was good enough to see exactly at that moment that it was definitively st- um, still in play before Dusty got his, his boot to it. Uh, but, yeah, brought up the uh, the old argument, didn't it, with uh, the camera and the goalpost. Uh, you know, it's such a lucrative industry. Why, why can't we have one? <laughs> like, if I had to guess, and it really would be a guess, it did look like it was probably over, but... I don't know. It's it's too hard to tell on one like this. It, yeah, like I would say I'm about 80% sure that it was over, and that's not going to be good enough in a... And when there's this yeah. much doubt, like, maybe you should just go with the lesser option. Like, it, this was obviously at a really critical stage of this game, and uh, I guess no one really knows for sure whether it was across the line or not, but, yeah, it was close. Well, well it's an interesting point, actually, because... You know, by the letter of the law, the ball has to fully cross the line and it has to fully cross the boundary line to go out. So it's there in the rules that they want it to be definitively over the line. So maybe they should have the same approach with this, that, you know, if you can't see it (laughs) totally across the line, then it might be, but maybe err on the side of, you know, uh, the lesser call, yeah. So I guess a slightly lucky one for Richmond there. 
So that got the margin to under a goal. It was a big goal, though. That's for sure. So really the whole of the last quarter, but especially in the last five minutes, Richmond's pressure went to another level. They were cannoning into their GWS opponents, not giving them an inch, and it was really hard for GWS to do anything at this time. Everything was under severe pressure. And in a big contest on the wing, Richmond won it back. And it was actually Rewalt collecting off the hands of the pack. It looked like his opponent in front probably got first touch on it. And Rewalt realized this and quickly went for an inboard handball as long as he could. And then something crazy happened. Somehow, even though even though Whitfield was closest to the ball, somehow the handball managed to bounce over Whitfield's head. And who was waiting? but Dan Rioli, who got the ball in the boot in a millisecond and the snap landed on the goal line and drifted through and the Richmond fans went into a frenzy. Oh, what a moment. What a moment. I don't think I've ever seen that before, a handball bouncing over someone's head. No. No, it was a first for me. Jeez, uh, but uh, yeah, after the week, I guess, for Dan Rioli, uh, nice to see that he was able to get some joy at the end of it. Yeah, he's good on the snap, isn't he? Yes. So, right yes, place at the right time there, for sure. So, there was still a little bit of time left for Richmond to negotiate now that they'd hit the front. And with less than a minute left on the clock, it was actually the Giants streaming through the midfield. They looked like they had a fair bit of space. And they got it to Hill, who was at about 60, who went long to a one-on-one. It was Green and Grimes going back towards the goal square. And Grimes did just enough to nullify it, it kind of looked like Green was holding on to Grimes at this stage. Maybe Grimes was doing a little bit of holding as well, so they probably just had to let that one go. Well, there were two moments in this, actually. Uh, there was that the holding from probably both of them, and I think it was all... I also think it was a good decision to let it go, just it's a draw sort of thing and just play on. Um, but people were also talking about a possible trip from Grimes on Green straight after. Uh, personally... That could have also been accidental. I don't know why a lot of people jumped straight out to say that it was definitely a trip because, you know, sometimes it's just reactionary and, you know, accidents happen. Uh, I was actually happy that they called play on, though, for, the, for both of these, but uh, it was definitely a contentious part of the game. For sure. And it wasn't over yet there either. So after that play with Green and Grimes, Richmond managed to get it pretty long out of defence, but the ball bounced the wrong way and actually went out of bounds, and it was paid deliberate. So GWS had one more chance. They got it in long, and somehow Taranto found it on the ground, and he was about 10 metres out on an angle, and for some reason he went for a dribble kick, even though there was a Richmond player in the square. So that was never going to work, and the game was over. Yeah, look, I think Taranto would love to have that time again. Uh, he would have, I reckon he could have probably sprinted towards the goal square, and maybe just come around, snap. But look, it was an instinctive move. Uh, but Dylan Grimes, uh, like a goalkeeper, just outstretched and saving the day like he always does for Richmond. Uh, Do you know yeah, whether Taranto's a left or right footer? Sorry? He went on the left. Do you know whether he's a left or right footer? Good question. I thought he might have been both, but uh, yeah. Because he tried the dribble on the left. So and he that- wanted to kick it on the left. Then, like, he would have had to do a check side. He might. I think he might have had to have done a check side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he, he could. Yeah. He could have just done a drop punt. <laughs> it wasn't that well, hard into the post. Well, I, I think he definitely should have. Um, he should have sort of uh, just 
taken a few steps at least because it seemed very quick that he got onto his boot for the drill. Yeah, I guess he probably thought he was under more pressure than I he think actually he did. was. I think he did. And it happens. All right, so just when a few people were starting to write Richmond off, they uh, find a way to get to five and four. Sitting Huge in eighth win. position on the ladder. So uh, fantastic game all the way through. And it looked like GWS had the game won a couple of times, but I guess against Richmond, you know, you you never know whether you've won till right at the end because they can have these surges and they had a couple in this game. This is definitely one of those games where a champion team gets over the line. Uh, I mean, some people will probably think that Dusty carried them on his back and without him, they probably wouldn't have stood a chance. But uh, yeah, there's just that special, I guess, spirit and a team that knows how to win. And it was definitely on display Saturday night. Yeah, to be able to play such a team game and, you know, with all their injuries, everyone's just stepping up where they need them. And, you know, they could have easily lost this game with a couple of those things that we've described, but I think it says a lot about them that they're able to still perform at this level with uh, so many of their first-choice players out. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And GWS, again, have been much improved that we've talked about, but unfortunately now I think... Uh, Toby Green's out for the next four weeks or so with a shoulder injury, so that'll make yeah. it harder for them. He's one of their main sources oh, of goal. It's a brutal injury. Um, hopefully he's back as soon as possible for them because, yeah, he makes it all work. For sure. So I guess from a Richmond perspective, what do you think this does for them? Obviously they're going to have you know, ups and downs still, especially until they can get more of their first-choice guys back. But I don't know, like, do you reckon they have to make the top four? Like, can they be one of these teams who does some damage from outside the top four, or do you still reckon they have to make the top four? Um, No, I think I think they could do damage from outside the top four. I think if they got their full side back just in time for September, I think they're definitely one of those teams that could sort of package up their momentum and and run the table in the uh, in the finals. But uh, this was definitely a massive win in the context of their season. They're probably going to drop a few more before they get their, their stars back, but one or two more at least. But uh, that could have easily been added to the list just there, and they were able to bank it. And, and it's definitely going to put them in good stead come the end of the year. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone's going to be lining up to play Richmond in the final. So <laughs> no, they're, they're going to be a dangerous team if they, if they don't end up making the top four. Yep, yep. All right, so that brings us to the end of our Game of the Round recap. So let's jump into a few other things that we found interesting over the weekend. So after a bit of a shaky start, Brisbane seems to have come with a bit of a rush. So they had... Another great win on the weekend, and uh, I guess we got to start asking, are they now in the conversation as one of the contenders for the flag? What do you reckon, Johnny? Look, I think they have to be. I mean, they've got the talent on their list to really go the distance, and you know, as, it, as it's proven, if you get that top four spot, you're always a shot. Uh, looking at their run next few weeks... It's it's not too bad. I mean, there's uh, there's Tigers next week. Oh, sorry, yeah, Tigers next week. Yeah. Uh, and after that, they have got the Giants, and 
in the Melbourne. So there's some tough ones, but if they can win maybe, you know, two of those, I would say that they're in a good position coming into the break. So, uh, yeah, I think they're absolutely a flag contender. It just seems to be flowing a lot better for them now. I guess they've made a few tweaks to their game style and everyone seems to be up to speed with the fitness. But I guess one of the biggest changes is they seem to be playing Charlie Cameron a bit closer to goal and uh, letting Joe Danaher roam a little bit more. That seems to be working really well for them. And Charlie Cameron's really the the barometer of how the season's gone. I think that first month he was absolutely atrocious. He couldn't he couldn't get near it. His set shots were terrible. And his last three weeks, I think, is the Charlie Cameron of old. He's, he's looking all Australian again. Yeah, so they really did a number on Gold Coast in the Q Clash. I think what it ended up being almost 100 points. So they yeah. can definitely put a score on a team. There's no doubt about that. Yes, and uh, on that, I mean, we just can't take the Q Clash seriously until it's a competitive Gold Coast that's on the other side. Yeah, Brisbane does seem to like beating up on them. Often they do save some of their best performances for Gold Coast. Yeah. A little bit reminiscent of what West Coast do to Freo sometimes in the Derby. It is. Beat up on them a bit. But um, yeah, I guess Gold Coast, that's that's probably another story, but they've they've got some things to, to worry about. So I was actually thinking about this on the way home from the footy on the weekend. You know, Melbourne's game style seems in such good order, but I was thinking, you know, who could actually cause Melbourne the most issues? And obviously there are plenty of good teams that could challenge Melbourne, but in terms of actually posing problems that actually might throw Melbourne a little bit off the way they're trying to play, I came up with probably two teams that I think stand out above the others. And Brisbane was actually one of those. Just because they've got so much scoring power they have the ability to you know control the ball but also go quickly uh when they want to and you know the defense is pretty solid as well so I think they could potentially be quite a difficult opponent for Melbourne and I guess the other one I was thinking of was probably the Bulldogs just with their midfield depth and the way they're able to uh you know challenge you in that way and they're pretty good in defense as well as long as they don't get too many can see too many entries so yeah i don't know who who do you think uh, the, the lines, main challenges for melbourne at the, the moment the lines is actually a really good one I, I think i might agree with that because they really do hurt you through the midfield and i think if there is a danger for melbourne it's the teams that could probably we, we were structured very well behind the ball but it's the teams that will be able to pierce us with really good uh foot passing and just hit the targets consistently that'll maybe weave their way through us and especially we saw with... that a bit against North Melbourne actually in that yes. first half where Melbourne weren't putting on much pressure at all North Melbourne was actually just picking Melbourne apart so obviously Brisbane's a lot better than North but uh yeah if they could get that sort of game going it could make it pretty hard for Melbourne and Melbourne still hasn't conceded more than 72 points in any game so far this season Carlton got 68 on the weekend but yeah I think Brisbane's definitely a threat yeah in terms of uh, what could give Melbourne their first loss. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously um, our back line can still hold up a- against some good forward lines, but there-, there is a point where if the service coming in is, is that good, I mean, it doesn't matter how good the back line is, we'll- you'll concede some points. 
Yeah, exactly. All right, so the next topic I wanted to have a little bit of a chat about is uh, when do you think the most likely time for a team to score might be? So I've got an idea about this, but maybe I'll throw that question to you first. Well, that's a, that is a really good question. I haven't thought a lot about that, but I have thought about something similar in the past. I think the best times to score are definitely towards the end of the quarters. And I would definitely say, I think something that's always been, it's not proven, but I think it's really high probability that if a game is sort of in the balance and there's maybe two goals in it late in the third quarter, if a team gets a run on of about two or three goals and the lead, if the lead gets up to that sort of four, maybe five goal lead, um, I just find that's a really good position to be in. If you, if you get that five goal lead at three quarter time, it's, Obviously, teams can come back from it, but it just, it's this mental sort of barrier thing. I just find that a 30-point lead is way more than a 20-point lead at three-quarter time in the AFL footy. But uh, I definitely, yeah, I think if you score towards the end of the quarters in the red time, that's worth a lot. Yeah, I'm not sure what the stats on this are in terms of what you're talking about there, yeah, three-quarter time leads. <laughs> but for quite a while in the season, I think... There was a, there was very few teams that were coming back from a deficit, even at halftime, but particularly at three quarter time. So I'm not sure if that's changed around much, but yeah, three quarter time lead is very hard to overcome in the modern game where you know teams are set up so well defensively. Yeah, I guess where I was going for this back to the original question: when's the most likely time to score a goal? Just watching some of the football, just the way it's being played now. You can still get into this little bit of a stalemate where, you know, one team sort of holding in at their half and, uh, you know, you might eventually get a score, but it can take quite a while for it to, you know, break open again. So to me, the most likely time to score a goal is almost after the opposition's just kicked one because, <laughs> you know, it goes back to the middle and, you know, the other team is going to be pushing really hard for a response. And, uh, yeah, it just... It's uncanny, especially looking at like the score worms, the number of times you'll get, you know, one goal and then another goal straight after, either to the same team, but often it's actually going back the other way. So just a goal for goal sort of style thing. I have to apologize there, Dan. I actually got likely confused with most ideal time to kick a goal. So that was the catalyst for my answer just now. But um, the likely time, I think you're probably right. I think... Uh, Goals happen in clusters, and if you do kick a goal, you're back to the centre. You know, if you miss it, it's a behind, it's still in your forward line. You know, they've got to go coast to coast. But it, you get that centre bounce, technically you are back on level terms, and it's all down to the ruckman, and you get that clearance, you, you know, anything can happen. So I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think the most likely time to score is, yeah, after they've scored a goal. All right, let's move on. So... Uh, this goes back to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier in terms of Marvel Stadium, which, of course, is the Dockland Stadium that's had many names over the years. And uh, Hardwick actually raised this in his press conference in terms of uh, saying perhaps it uh, doesn't have as much of a soul as the MCG, at least for Richmond people. So the question I have is, is Marvel Stadium soulless? <laughs> well, um... <sighs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's completely soulless. I mean, it, it's been there a while. There's been some some good games there. I mean, it's 
<laughs> compared to a what a hundred and fifty year old stadium in the MCG or whatever. Like, yeah, look, it's it's gonna be you know lacking some history in that. But honestly, what Damien Hardwick said in his press conference, and look, I respect Damien as a coach, but that kind of just sounded like a whole lot of just trite stuff to me. The whole oh, this is a solar stadium, we hate coming here, and our home's the MCG. I actually wasn't that impressed with it to be honest, and. There's plenty of clubs, as we mentioned before, plenty of clubs can lay claim to the MCG being their actual home and they should have a divine right to playing there. But, you know, like sometimes games have got to be played here and we should all just embrace it when we get the chance, you know, rather than being negative about it. Yeah, I guess it's it's just it's just so different to the MCG for one thing. There's the history and just the feel, the acoustic. It's just very different. When you've got like such an amazing stadium like the MCG, I think any other stadium is probably going to suffer in comparison. But, you know, Docklands has had so many issues over the years, years, whether it be, you know, the direction it was built in, which has a problem with the sun, the actual playing surface, the fact that even if you've got a large crowd there, you don't really get the acoustics like you do with most other stadiums. If people aren't clapping, it almost sounds like it's completely silent. It's it's just a weird place. <laughs> Yeah, see, I would definitely agree with that more more than Solus. I think it's a strange, it's a strange stadium. I think uh, like it was just flawed from the start. In yeah, exactly the the design, the the direction, the the sun that just sort of belts in when the when the roofs open and uh, and that surface they've never really quite gotten it right. Um, which is, I I don't know what the thinking behind it was, but I don't really know how anyone ever thought that having grass on a concrete base was ever going to be a good idea. I, I, yeah, it's um, like, it's not a bad... I loved the concept when it first came out, but it is just a really strange stadium. And even for things like, uh, you know, music concerts and things like that, the acoustics are terrible as well. It's almost... It's just a... It, it, I mean, it's harsh, but it is like a mediocre stadium, really. I mean, it's it's threatening to be something amazing, but it's just not... Yeah, and I think a lot of these issues that we're talking about, they're not really fixable either. No. Like you can't not. change you can't change the acoustics. And it's not like you're gonna, you know, knock down a two hundred and fifty yep. million dollar yep. stadium. Short so of bulldozing it and starting again, yeah. We're kinda stuck with it. So I guess there are pro- there were obviously mistakes made in the design of it and, you know, a few other things probably. But uh, you know, the AFL owns it, it's a very lucrative asset. Yep, real and, estate. And uh, you know, the um the games you get there are often actually pretty good games because it is a bit shorter, you know, it's quite end-to-end style of football, but just in terms of a venue to actually go to and watch football. For the public. For the public, it's not great. And I don't know, maybe, you know, fans like Western Bulldogs and St Kilda who play a lot of their home games there might have a slightly different opinion of it. But when you're, when you're more used to the MCG and you go across Docklands, there's not many redeeming features, I would say. No, there's not. There's not. Um, but yeah, look, maybe maybe they would have a slightly different opinion. But look, I think a lot of the footy fans out there uh, probably prefer the MCG. So yeah, that's just the way it is. Things. Just be thankful that if you te- if you go for a team that they play their home games at the MCG, I suppose it's a great place to play a lot of your footy. I would like to see uh, Carlton resurrect Princess Park. I think it's you know, it's still a it's still a good facility for the I think in the VFL and the AFLW. Um 
There hasn't been a bit about that lately, hasn't it? Yeah. Like, this sort of split between Marvel and MCG. Yeah, sorry. They got a little bit of money to do some redevelopment. I don't think it was a massive thing, but to bring it up to speed a little bit. Yeah, it just makes sense. I mean, because, yeah, they're split between the two grounds at the moment, and uh, it would just be good for their identity. To Do you remember what the capacity was? I think, was it around, like, 30,000? Yeah, it was about that. It was about that. Maybe, yeah, maybe just under. Kind of all you need, really, especially if you're playing against an interstate team. So Exactly, yeah. No, but it'd be nice to have that sort of suburban feel again. Yeah, I didn't mind Princess Park. Did you go there many times over uh, the years? Yeah, a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't mind it either. Um, yeah, I remember going to the old Victoria Park as well. <laughs> um, yes, interesting places. But uh, yeah, no, I do You know, sometimes yearn for suburban footy. All right, let's jump into true or false now. So we've got a few true or false statements to uh, summarize a few of the things that have been going on. So despite not being on top, the dogs are the premiership favorites. True or false, Johnny? I think this is true. Uh, with with the dogs, as we said before, they're just elite through the middle, of the, like between half back and half forward. Their ball use is just elite. They never scuff or hack any of their kicks. Uh, you know, you'll see guys like Caleb Daniel just coming up with these beautiful teammate funding kicks just out of nowhere. Uh, we all know Bontempelli's a great field kick, but even guys like Jack McRae, I've noticed, they've really, really improved their kicking. And I actually heard a story from Matthew Lloyd recently that uh, when he came to the club, he had to learn how to kick off a witch's hat because his ball drop was so high. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, he was one of those ball magnets that just you know couldn't kick, but it shows that you can improve this area of the game. Um, so yeah, the, the, we've said it before, the back line is a little bit of a concern, especially now with Easton Wood being injured. But uh, I just think that if that midfield's on song, no one's going to touch him. It's interesting. I'd probably go false. I think maybe I would say they're joint favourites, but I don't think they're necessarily above uh, a few other teams. At mm. the moment, I'd probably put... Melbourne, Bulldogs, and maybe even Geelong sort of on level pegging. Yeah. So, still not sure about Geelong, but maybe I'll say Bulldogs and Melbourne. I think Melbourne will actually match up really well against the Bulldogs. Yeah. If they can either break even through the midfield or, you know, just not let Bulldogs be too dominant, put enough pressure on, I feel like Melbourne will stand up pretty well in defence and their efficiency going forward in the past couple of weeks in particular, they're getting a lot of marks inside 50. They actually don't need that much of the ball. So no, I think if anyone actually does have a decent game style to beat the Bulldogs, I think Melbourne does. Yeah. And it'll probably be harder at Dockland, so we might not get the full answer to this until play them at the MCG a little bit later on. But I can't say that Bulldogs are clearly ahead of Melbourne at the moment, to me anyway. No, nope. we will find out. On May 28th, Friday night, uh, when yeah, they play each other at Marvel. So <laughs> that'll say a lot. All right. North Melbourne are ahead of Hawthorne in their journey to ascend back up the ladder. True or false? <laughs> well, this is a very good time to pose that question, I reckon. Uh, I, even before this week, I actually thought North had a few more promising youngsters than Hawthorne on the list at the moment. Hawthorne's, you know, uh, 
Hawthorne's got some guys that are definitely going to be there for the future, like Kaczynski and uh, and Jaitu. I, I really like Jaitu as well. I think he's he'll probably be like the next Alir Alir. But um, I think North, it's going to be a slow burn, but there's definitely some youngsters there that I think could become some bona fide A-grade midfielders in the future. And, uh, yeah, if Taron Thomas is one of them, if he puts it together, uh, he could be very, very impressive. Uh, and then there's the others, the mid guys. Like Aaron Hall's playing really good footy in the last few weeks. It makes you wonder why he hasn't been able to have a consistent run of form like this because he's very, very talented. Um, but what the main thing that I'm very impressed with North at the moment, and especially on the weekend, was uh, the three contested bulls in the middle. Uh, Josh, it was Josh Simkin, Ben Cunnington, and uh, uh, Davis Uniac, who I have never seen these numbers before. Um, Simkin, 38 touches, 23 contested, 13 clearances. Cunnington, 37 touches, 23 contested, 13 clearances. Davis Uniac, uh, 24, 11 clearances. Like, Crazy. When does that happen? <laughs> like, that's just insane. It's interesting what's happening to Hawthorne in the midfield at the moment, though, because they've still got a fair bit of experience in there. Like, yeah, they, know, they do. Tom, Tom Mitchell, they've still got an experienced Ruckman with yeah. McAvoy. I guess he's getting a bit older now. Um, yeah, like, there's a few guys who are still right up there, and like, Warpool is yeah, you know, well, he's pretty seasoned now. Yep. O'Meara's been in and out a bit, but like, I guess it's. They just seem to be, uh, you know, giving up a lot of numbers through the midfield pretty consistently. It is those guys like O'Meara, Wingard, Impey, Shields even. Like, are they going to be that sort of... Are they going to be the crux of their next sort of good side? And just, I'm not 100% sure that like, if they can provide what, yeah, what, what a great side needs. I mean, like, some of them might. Some of those guys I mentioned might, but... I don't know, there's just a few question marks with them. Yeah, well, they're probably going to be kind of too old by the time Hawthorne's really contending again. And that's so the thing. That's I guess the thing. that goes to, like, you know, who can you trade out? Who actually has trade value? Wingard's been mentioned, but, like, they're going to have to do something, surely. They need to get some more picks in. And the, the other thing about Hawthorne is they don't really have that um, that sort of gorilla handler defender uh, to handle the big forwards. I mean, I feel like it, they really... Lost something when, when well, I guess when Frawley left, but uh, also even going back to guys like Brian Lake. I mean, there's just no one to really take those those big forwards. They've got some good mid-sized defenders, but um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a gap. Yeah, lots of holes at the moment. Lots of holes in that list. So, looks like the game may have regressed backwards a little bit compared to the openness we saw in the early part of the year. So despite the rule changes that are designed to open up the game, the game is aggressed backwards, true or false? So so the game in general has gone backwards? Yeah, it's a bit open, but uh, I guess, yeah, just it's regressed backwards, I suppose. Yeah, that's sort of... Well, it's, it's definitely not as it. open as it was in the first, say, four rounds of the season. Um, I don't know if it's regressed backwards. I mean, there's still some good games and there's some good skill on display and great, you know, in and under hard-fought games. But, um, yeah, look, I, I still think the skill level is there. I think 
it would be a great question to ask in the second half of the season when there's a bit more fatigue in that, I think, with the uh, everything that the players have got to deal with. But uh, look, I still think the game is better than it has been for a while. So you go false here then? Yeah, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Like, the game can still break open. It's just not happening probably as regularly. But, you know, not every game has to be the same. So I think the rule changes have helped create a bit more space. The coaches have found a way to close down yep. some of the space. But, you know, when you get on top of another team, there's still more opportunities to score. There's more opportunities to attack when you really want to go. So I think that's important. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I think it would be incorrect to say it's completely regressed backwards. And tactics also get altered as the season goes on. Um, maybe earlier in the season, you're more willing to throw caution to the wind in some of the games that you're in and you know, go for go for broken. Maybe later on, maybe there's a little bit more caution with some of the team's approaches. So I'm not, not sure. I haven't got any examples, but you never know. It could be something like that as well. All right, last one. With nine wins in a row for the first time since 1956, the curse of Norm Smith has been broken. True or false? Uh, false, false, false. The curse of Norm Smith won't be broken until Melbourne wins a flag. That's that's really all it comes down to. This is fantastic. It's nice to be breaking these records, but uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the holy grail. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. So I guess the reference there is that 1956 was kind of pre- curse and it was obviously a premiership year for Melbourne right in the middle of the three-peat but uh, yeah I guess the curse has always been around the lack of a premiership so until they actually win a premiership I'd guess in theory you'd have to say the curse is still in vogue. Whether it's an omen or not is that's another question it could be. (laughs) Yeah I saw all the nine and Oh, streaks Melbourne's had have actually been premiership years, but you know they're, yeah. they're all back in the fifties and further. So obviously, the way the game is played now and back then is extremely different. But yeah, it's, it can only be a good thing. I think the yeah. fact that they're nine and Yeah. All right. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for today, guys. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Footy Type. Thanks for spreading the word and uh, telling your friends and family about footy time and uh, continuing to listen. We always have a lot of fun doing this. 